0: Welcome to Always Authors, the literary podcast that features two authors in candid conversation. On this episode, we're excited to bring you Carrie Schlotman in conversation with Amy Schoen. Carrie is the award-winning author of the novel Tell Me One Thing from Regal House Publishing. Amy is the award-winning author of the novels Unseen City, The Mermaid of Brooklyn, and How Far is the Ocean from Here? Inspiration starts now.
1: Amy, it's so good to be in conversation with you. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks, Carrie. Um, Yeah, it's so nice to be here. Yeah, so I think this is really exciting because you and I just got to be in conversation in person recently uh, when you helped me launch my novel, Tell Me One Thing, which I really appreciate, and... I feel like we had so much more conversation left in us and, you know, we can't really keep people in the audience for like three hours and we won't do that now either. But, (laughs) um, but there were a few things that came up in that conversation that I've been dying to talk to you about. And so this kind of came at the right moment where maybe we can do that now.
0: Totally. It was such a fun conversation. And one of those book events where afterwards you're sort of joking, like we should do a podcast together, but then we (laughs) made it real. Now we're really doing it. <laughs> I know. We actually
1: made it happen. So so exciting. Magical. The thing I keep thinking about, um, so in the audience that night, someone, someone who was like a diehard nonfiction reader said, why should I read fiction books? And it was such a weird question because as a reader of everything, I was like, oh, would you only ever pick one category? But then, you know, I think there really are people out there who, um, you know, gravitate kind of towards one or the other. And I remember I kind of stumbled through an answer to that question. I don't even know what I said, and it was probably embarrassing. (laughs) But you had such a great answer because you started talking about how you learn so much from reading fiction because authors really have to, you know, we have to know what we're talking about. We have to do a lot of research. We have to create these really credible worlds. And, you know, unless you're writing something that's, you know, fantastical, obvious, and you get to, like, make up whatever you want, you know, we have to really know what we're doing, and we have to make sure that we're being true to the histories we're talking about and the present situations that we're talking about. And I think, you know, that was that kind of moment where I also realized this is one of the things I loved about your book, Unseen City, is because I learned so much about New York history from reading your book. And it actually did encourage me to then go and learn even more about it. And so that night at Word Bookstore, when we talked recently, you were asking me questions because it was my book launch. And I'm so excited I get to ask you questions now, too. (laughs) you on this spot. <laughs> but I'm so curious. Um, I loved Unseen City. It's one of my favorite books. And um, I'm curious about how, first of all, if you could tell everybody a little bit about it, but also how you went about researching it and and what drew you specifically to that story? Oh, that's such a
0: good question. Thank you, Carrie. <laughs> it's so funny because I know you had mentioned that the question from the audience when we were emailing before this and I said, what did I say? I don't even remember what I said, Um, which is typical of me. But I feel like another answer would be, because I think the question was what am I going to learn from reading fiction? What's the point? Which to me, as a, I mean, I write nonfiction too, but really my soul is with fiction. And I was like, what an offensive question because... (laughs) I mean, do you only it's such a transactional relationship to have with reading, like I will only read something if I can obtain some information from it, which is a great way to read, you know, journalism and, and, you know, sort of instructional or informative nonfiction. But I feel like there's so many other reasons to read. And I feel like something that I, I always learn from reading a novel, whether it's researched or historical or not. Um, you know, in a great novel, there's a lot of big T truths about life, about how people interact, about how many times have you read a novel and just read a part about a, a relationship or some observation about how people are interacting and thought, oh, God, that's so true. I didn't realize other people felt that way. I'd never seen it articulated that way, which to me is like the stuff of of living a life. Um but also, sometimes we actually do a lot of research for novels, <laughs> as you did um, with Tell Me One Thing. And I, I think, for me, I love learning about history, but I zone out a little bit. Sometimes reading sort of like a straight historical text, yeah. and to me, a novel or, you know, historical fiction, something like that, is just... I don't know, a more palatable way to take take that in. Um, Which I felt of your novel too. But you had asked about my novel Unseen City, which weaves together two storylines, kind of like two and a half storylines, but there's a present day librarian who is helping a patron research his house, which is in Brooklyn, and which he suspects might be haunted. And then there's another storyline of the history of the house, particularly in the 1860s when it was a new house and was part of this settlement, um, this rural settlement in Brooklyn before Brooklyn was Brooklyn. <laughs> and, um, and which I really, when I started writing that book, I did not mean to take on such a big project. (laughs) I kind of thought, wouldn't it be cool if I had this character who started researching a ghost, a haunted house in Brooklyn, and then there'd be this historical layer. So I kept researching sort of different elements of Brooklyn history and and realized, as probably all historians already knew, but to me it felt like somewhat of a a revelation that you can't really dig that deep beneath the surface of any story of American history without getting to a story of, um, I mean, it started off being sort of about gentrification, but then below that is sort of a deeper story of of racism and disenfranchisement and to whom does the land belong and to whom does the city belong? Um, So I ended up doing tons of research about Civil War era Brooklyn and and the draft riots in the 1860s that really transformed the New York City in a way that I had never learned about before, really. Um, and yeah, I just ended up doing way more research than shows up in the book, as I'm sure you did too. You know, you have to do so much more research than you actually need for the book. And I got yeah, really, I really, do. I got really obsessed, you know, for a while, I, I remember I was writing, listening to Historical recordings of 1860s music, which was oh, cool. real weird vibe, that music, lots of <laughs> 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 And just like, watching documentaries and reading all of these, you know, journals that people had kept at the, from the time and letters and trying to get, you know, the texture of what people's voices were like then. That's
1: amazing. But it comes through so well in the book because I felt so transported back to those time frames. And I loved how you went between present and past because, you know, there'd be moments where you were so, so deeply in this other environment. And then to be brought back into the future, into the current situation, was just kind of a reminder, too, that like, Even though these things are so far apart, you know, chronologically, like there's so many things that are still the same, right? The concept of erasure, the concept of displacement, the concept of things getting built on top of things. And then, you know, what remains? Because I know there's still, you know, there's still remnants of these things there's artifacts around there's things that you find and you know i think when we live you know we, we both are in new york city area like this these little things peek out everywhere right and they just are so intriguing and when i was researching tell me one thing so you know, my book um, travels from 1980s to present day. And I did the same, I was so steeped in like the 80s at some point and I was alive in the 80s. So this wasn't such a far leap for me. Like I could remember things, but a kid, you know? definitely <laughs> different when you're a kid and then going back to it as an adult. And, then, right. and I, I was doing the same, listening to the music. And again, like, you know, this is still music that's being played all the time. Now it's a little different, but I got hardcore into it also. And like, it kind of, it was really interesting because it was a little nostalgic, you know, and it was also like a reminder of where some of the issues that we see today, like some of the really early seeds of those problems. And, you know, I think this is what was fascinating too about Unseen City is that, you know, those seeds just go, they're dropped every generation, you know, like you could basically pick up any point in time and find all of these social issues you know, all of these political issues. sometimes these things feel very much like this is the first time we're experiencing them and it's not, you know, like and right. some I think that's such an important part of writing books that, you know, pop back in time to certain places just as, as a way to kind of calibrate like these the constants and the things that are pervading through time. And um, you know, that can be a challenging thing to do. And and I think when writers do it well, like, you know, I thought you did it so well with Unseen City that I kept feeling like, my gosh, like these are, you know, just to, to think about like the histories there and the the different layers was really intriguing and a really actually extremely powerful thing about your book. Oh, thank you. Gosh, I'm so glad we're doing this. Come on,
0: <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> no, I mean, it was true that uh, I, I ended up feeling like the real the real haunted house is america of course yes and it's really we're sort of haunted by you know unresolved grief which has been our legacy since the troubled founding of this country you know which i guess in a way is true of every country but for us it's happened real fast and without a lot of processing and then when i when i was this book took a long time to write um and when I was starting to write it, the Black Lives Matter movement was really first starting in that iteration, being called that. Um, and because uh, I was, I started writing it and I started researching it in maybe like 2014, 2015. So, um, and then to be researching, you know, oh, okay. In, uh, and I'm really bad with dates, which makes history hard for me, but um <laughs> time in in the, in the there was the Crown Heights riots, you know, in the mm, 90s, It somewhere in between 1860 and now, um, <laughs> you know, which one is like, <laughs> racially motivated um, riots. This clash between the, you know, Hasidic Jewish population in the neighborhood and the Caribbean population in the neighborhood which still there's sort of like an uneasy truce I feel like in that part of Brooklyn between those sort of very different but also sometimes similar cultures um and then that this was happening sort of on the same piece of land where you know riots and uprisings were happening in the civil war era and and just that it's like we've been doing the same thing and having the same arguments you know every 100 years every 50 years, I mean, constantly, and never resolving it in sort of 2020, 2021, especially in New York City, it felt like, oh, God, so much stuff is happening. There's all these uprisings. Things are really going to change in this country. And then you sort of get back to neutral, and you're like, oh, wait, maybe I not. Know. I mean, one hopes that each time we sort of confront, you know, our troubled past as a Deeply racist nation. Um, you know, we chip away a little bit more at it. I hope, maybe. But yeah, all of which is to say, you do see the seeds of everything.
1: Yes, you really do. And I love how you talk about the haunting because I think about that. I mean, you literally have that in your book. And I thought it was really brilliant the way that you bring. Um, sort of the actual and also metaphorical ways to think about haunting. And I think, you know, and, and tell me one thing, I, tr- I try to do a similar thing when it can, again, like there's not as much history there, but I, even from my time in New York, so I moved here in 2005 mm. and everything has changed so much. And I think about walking down sidewalks that I walked down so many times and everything you know, the, the scene around me is constantly changing. The city is constantly under construction. Yeah. Um, the demographics of the city is constantly changing. And I think, um, you know, in my book, I talk about that haunting the character, the photographer who's, you know, spent her life living in New York City, hustling to, you know, with her art career and, and how that, you know, just what that feels like. And I, I was thinking about this earlier. Um, there's this concept that I've been reading about called solastalgia. And it's oh. this idea of feeling homesick for your home, even though you're in your home. And, you know, feeling um, nostalgic for your environment as it's changing around you. And I feel mm-hmm. like, I think we're all in this suspended state of soul where, mm-hmm. and this was a term I think that came out of like climate change, like quite literally. Mm-hmm. But I feel like it's, it applies to so much other stuff. And I think about this all the time where, um, you know, we're here, we're still here. We're again, walking the same sidewalks, but everything feels from minute to minute, like it's changing and shifting. And I feel this very much also with the environment and things that are happening in this sort mm-hmm. of sadness for something I can't really control. Um, and I think that this is, you know, sometimes I wonder, is this just the cycle of things? Like, like we're talking about, like, is this just one of those other constants that you know, as part of being alive, or yes. is this, you know, some sort of, you know, human-made erasures, and I think they're kind of the same thing, you know, yeah. which makes it really challenging.
0: It's, I mean, it's so true. Okay, you made me think of, like, 10,000 things, one of which is, I think it's O. Henry, some writer, says about New York, it'll be a great city if they ever finish it. <laughs> yeah. I feel like I always feel that way. I also moved here in 2005, actually. Oh, my gosh. Um, mostly. I was here briefly in 2001, which was not a fun time to be here. Um, But yeah, it has really changed a lot. And I feel like sometimes when they finish building this city, I can't wait to see what it looks like. (laughs) Then I have to remind myself that that's not not a thing. Um, But then also, yeah, that idea of things shifting um, and the sense of yeah, nostalgia. I love that. Climate grief, I feel like, is so real. But I feel like I was actually just having this conversation with my almost 14-year-old daughter who's really upset about the the willow drilling project that just got approved on federal land in Alaska, which I believe she heard about on TikTok. Um, and she was like, I think that's really bad. People are saying that's, like, it. Like, if that happens, it's it. That's it for the world. I was like, well... It is bad. It It's bad. It's a really bad thing. But also, uh, is anything it? And also, I really do think that that might be a bit of a constant. I mean, when I, you probably found this researching the 1980s when I was researching, you know, the 19th century, there was a lot of the sense of like, this is it. Like, society is about to collapse. We're having a civil war. (laughs) Like shit is bad. Right. Um, And then, you know, I think every generation has that. There's actually a word for that, I think. What it is, but that sense that every generation is like, this is probably the end of the world. It's like a little bit, know you know. (laughs) Of course, I'd be here for the apocalypse,
1: right? No, it's exactly it. Think
0: about like our parents' generation. You know, they're like, okay, you know, there's going to be a nuclear war. This is probably it, and it always feels really real, and it always is really real.
1: It's Um, so exact. It's so interesting because when I was writing, tell me one thing. So I had it was acquired um, a year into the pandemic. And so, I, you know, and so I was I still revising so fast. it I did a yeah. pretty quick write on that. Yeah. And, um, so, but I was doing the fi- sort of final revisions when the pandemic hit and, you know, in my book, you know, this is again in the eighties in New York city, the, the AIDS crisis, you know, going yeah. deep into research on that. Obviously we all know about it, but to do the real deep research and understand what was happening at a policy level, like why was this, how did it get so bad, you know, until, with people not paying attention to it, with, you know, doctors not helping, with all of the situations that were happening around it, and obviously the political systems at the time were really doing nothing to to help either, but, you know, that was a pandemic into, you know, and it affected a certain demographic of people, and it was horrible, and it was also on top of, you know, a uh, the you know constant racism as well the systemic racism that's just been a constant and then on top of the drug crisis too and I, I think for sure people in that time also felt that same way like this is it yeah. <laughs> you know this yeah is, there's so much bad things happening and um, I feel like we're taking this in this really gloomy place but I think all that to say <laughs> this is actually <laughs> to say that that I think um, resilience is is kind of the resounding theme of some of this work and I think for me looking back and writing some of those, whether it's recent or further back histories is is really important because it does show that people are extremely resilient, that um, there are constants like this, you know, like these really traumatic, challenging things that we all have to face every generation. And yeah, that this is not unique (laughs) to each generation. And I think that's it's an important lesson. I think it's one of the powerful things about writing books that flash back in time like that, because yeah. um, it gives you the ability to, to look at perspectives from a couple of different generations. And hopefully that helps readers as well to like put some things in perspective. And also maybe eventually, you know, some of these <laughs> histories won't repeat, hopefully. Right, but I okay. mean, so far, like both of our books are examples of how throughout time these things have not changed. Maybe shown, we cracked did. it. Maybe we end it. You're welcome, everyone.
0: (laughs) Figured it out. Sometimes you just got to write it down, you know? Um, (laughs) Carrie, I loved Tell Me One Thing so much. And something that I feel like we didn't really talk about when we talked about the book. And I think, I feel like most of your, (laughs) in my Carrie deep dives that I've done, as a friendly stalker, um, (laughs) often... The what gets talked about about your book is this really compelling storyline of this photographer in the 80s and the sort of heady art world of the 80s and that she gets wrapped up in. But then the other storyline, which is so interesting and I'm sure was so deeply researched, it feels like it was, is this the life of this little girl whose photo she takes, um, in rural like Rust Belt, Pennsylvania, and just Pennsylvania, right? <laughs> and, um, and just how just the texture of the poverty and sort of the, you can see the kind of, you know, to use that metaphor again, the seeds being planted for the opioid epidemic. And um, in a way that to me, like I felt that so much more distinctly reading your book than if I read, say, you know, a newspaper article or something, but just the kind of grinding poverty and lack of choices in people's lives. And you can really see you know, living with those characters, I'd be like, oh, is something going to make you feel good for an hour? Yeah, go for it." <laughs>
1: you know, like I exactly. can see
0: why that's so compelling. But, I mean, I feel like you've written a lot about, and and I know from talking to you that you're for your next book are thinking about um, kind of trying to tell more stories about uh, more, you know, rural areas in. America, and maybe, you know, we both live in such kind of blue areas. Um, yeah. Sort of like what's going on in the rest of the country? Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't yeah. know. Do you, are you doing research for your next book? Or are you done writing?
1: I am. Well, so technically, I'm done with the next book, although you're never really done until it gets printed and published. But um, I am very deeply concerned about. The conversations that we don't have in this country. Yeah. And I think one of them is around rural poverty. And yeah. I think that, and even economic inequality from an intersectional lens. And I think that's why we have some of the Trumpism, or I, I don't know a better word for it, so I'm just using that. I one think by it we still is. <laughs> I think it still <laughs> is still too, fun. unfortunately. <laughs> and I think it'll probably have a new term at some point. But the discontentedness that comes out of these areas because there's this, you know, perception that that the rest of the world doesn't care about them and it's not unfounded. You know, yeah. I think that a lot of promises have been made in these areas. I grew up in a really strange environment. So I grew up in Southeast Detroit, but once you get outside of Detroit, it's very rural. So I was kind of on this edge of like, if you drive five minutes one way, you're in a city. If you drive five minutes the other way, you're in serious country. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I grew up very low income with a single mother. So I was, you know, I was definitely, it's not hard for me to, um, to relate to some of the storylines I write, especially in Tell Me One Thing About Lulu, the young character. Um, my circumstances were not as dire as hers, but, but I was certainly, um, friends with people who had almost as dire situations as she did and yeah. had extremely challenging times and my own times were challenging. And then I moved to New York in 2005 and it was like, I always wanted to be here. Like when you're, when you grow up in a place like that, I think you either are going to stay there for good yeah. or you're, you work your whole life to get out of there. Right. <laughs> and, um, I worked my whole life to get out of there. I finally got out. I feel a terrible kind of staying in that way, but it does feel like you kind of survive something when you leave some of these environments and cause they're challenging. And I finally moved to New York um, when I was 29, I didn't come here super young. So I was, you know, already a a professional working in the arts, which helped because I could, you know, get a job that paid decently enough to be able to afford to live here. But it was culture shock. I remember, like... Walking down the street and looking at these beautiful brownstones, like by Washington Square Park, and thinking, Oh, I want to, I would love to live in one of those. Because, <laughs> you know, in Detroit, you can live in something that looks like that. And it's like, you know, $500 a month in rent. Yeah. And just like realizing exactly the circumstance that I was in financially compared to the rest of New York and, and thinking, Oh, oh, okay, okay. Like, I'm lucky right. I'm even here. There's still days where I feel like I don't know that I should be here or could be here financially. And yeah. I think that's um that's just a challenging thing for everyone. That goes back again to these ideas of displacement, gentrification, and all of these issues right. that we face yeah. in New York every single day. But but yeah, so I, you know, I have a foot in both of these kinds of mentalities. When I go back home, I am steeped in like, you know, very conservative thinking. Not necessarily my own family, thankfully. They're they're very progressive thinkers, but they're factory workers, you know, yeah. they're they're educators, they're social workers. Um, and then I come back to New York and it's a whole different kind of scene. But, um, before, before the election in 2020, I just remember thinking, oh, New Yorkers have no idea what's coming because the (laughs) the county that my mom, yeah, no, and it was really shocking because, you know, the, like, I grew up in a swing state in the county that is the swing county, the one that actually determines who, which way the state goes generally. And when I went home in 2020 and saw Trump signs everywhere, I thought, "Oh no, this is this is definitely not going to go, you know, for the Democrats." And so, um, and I understood why because, you know, there's people there who just really felt like they their whole lives were kind of at risk as far as you know, no one no one was coming to talk to them about what they were going to do for them. Um, I don't at all condone the way that some of this behavior manifests, but I'm trying to write stories that like. Get people to understand why people are so unhappy in these areas, why they feel left behind. And hopefully, you know, we can start having a conversation about what we can do to support everyone rising up. Because this is generation after generation of poverty. It's not, you know, from a factory closing or, you know, like, it's like everybody's on the line where one thing happens and that's all it takes to like completely economically decimate an area. And I don't think we talk about that enough
0: yeah and I feel like it's becoming kind of a generational problem too I mean not to uh, diminish how intense it is to be living in rural poverty which I don't know anything about really um, except from reading books like yours but um (laughs) good imagination but um but did you read there was just a a piece that Jessica Gross wrote in the New York Times about how Millennials can't afford to have midlife crises. crises? No,
1: crises. I haven't read that.
0: It was super, I mean she's so smart, it was super interesting, but it was about, you know, sort of like is this the end of the midlife crisis? Because the midlife crisis used to be this, in the way she wrote it, it used to be this moment, you know, of course it's very like bourgeois, middle-class, white, generally, white-collar moment. But in the past, it's been that moment where you know, okay, say you got married in your twenties, you bought your first house, you um, are kind of established in your career, you're in your forties, and you're you look around, you're like, what is that? It was that all the excitement? What do I do? I guess I. I mean, so it's also so male, kind of the yeah, buy a flashy car, have an affair yeah. or something. Um, and she interviewed all these millennials who, you know. The, the oldest millennials are, according to her, in their early 40s. Um, I'm always like, I'm 43, so I'm always like, am I a millennial? <laughs> what am I? But, um, but now it's like you have a generation of people who have never had stability, have never had certainty, even in the, the so-called middle class. There's a lot of people who, you know, haven't been able to buy – the house, don't have any savings, don't have retirement funds, like have not yet reached a place of stability. And it seems like we'll never reach a place of stability. Our jobs aren't stable, you know, like nothing's uh, stable. But then also I do feel like a real old fart saying that because (laughs) in that way that, you know, also, every generation is like, everything was better when I was young. <laughs> you know, <laughs> <And> the <laughs> 90s were amazing. There were no problems in the whole world. I, I think about it, I'm like, is that true? Right. Or is it just that I was like, you know, 16?
1: <laughs> I know, like, I know.
0: Personally, didn't have any troubles.
1: But I do think you're hitting on something important, though, which is that there actually, I mean, there's definitely some of that, but there's also the, the real problem that, yeah, the wealth in the country is getting concentrated more, you know, to this kind of higher echelon, 1% of people. Yeah. And this is, you know, meanwhile, the rest of us are kind of scrambling. And I think that these are really hard things. And I think that, you know, we're we're also in a system, I think a political system that benefits from keeping us divided along those lines. Mm -hmm. And I I really think we would change. I think the whole country would change if everybody sort of, I feel, I always envision it like some kind of like puzzle you put back into a box, shake it up really hard (laughs) and then like have to put it back together. But it feels to me like, you know, if you could pull away all the kind of propaganda that's constantly in our faces and say, here's the certain issues that people care about. Those are pretty universal. I read this book, Dirt Road Revival which is such a good book, and it's written by um, this uh, this woman who ran who you know left a very rural area in Maine and went and got educated in like Ivy League schools and then went back to her very small town and ran for um, for a political position as a Democrat and then she talks really candidly about the issues of like you know, the Democratic Party not caring about rural America and mm-hmm. how. She literally went door to door to every single person. She was in the most conservative area of Maine. This is in Maine. And everyone said there's no way a Democrat's ever gonna win this. <laughs> so she went door to door, talked to everybody. Everyone had the exact same worries. They were the exact mm-hmm. same. Like they worried about their financial security, about yeah. their health and safety. And then she ended up winning, like overwhelmingly winning That's off good. people yeah. who like who would never have voted for a Democrat. Yeah. And she talks about like how to do that. But I feel like, you know, like we need to like make a whole bunch of her, you know, (laughs) like get her out there. I feel like that would be really powerful. But again, I think this all goes back to, you know, why stories are so important because they are, like you were saying earlier, I also like, I kind of zone out when I'm reading just straight up like history textbooks and, and I have to learn history through more creative ways as well. And I think it's so powerful, um, getting into a character's mind and like, that's where you actually start to like develop empathy and start to see yeah. things differently in perspective. And I think, um, I feel like like maybe history textbooks should all just be replaced with like really good historical fiction, but you know, now we're in this era of book banning and I feel like that oh, would, yeah. I mean, that would just, yeah, that could open a whole other kind of can of worms, but you know, this is why though, but this is why those kind of, you know, books are getting banned versus like no one's necessarily, I mean, I know that we have these issues with like people banning critical race theory, but you know, they're banning fiction because it is so powerful. It's telling the same stories as these like crappy, boring textbooks are. <laughs> it's doing it in a way that actually could change something and actually ignite people to like have empathy, to like think about organizing, to think about themselves. And yeah, you know, that's such a powerful thing. And that does, that definitely did not happen to me in like junior high history class like at all. Oh, I was just like, what what is a fight the adding
0: with historians everywhere? What are you doing? I'm so sorry. I <laughs> like love a you historian. You're so
1: important and there are people who love reading your work. Could what? you like add some more scene? Like a little dialogue <laughs> Maybe it could be, up a little Yeah. They could have like little like uh, vignettes of you know creative storytelling within it. <laughs>
0: It's like a historical reenactment in like a true crime show, but it could just yes. be a little moment of scene in a history
1: textbook. Oh my god, so we just also solved the that. problem of education. Yeah, anymore. you're welcome,
0: <laughs> American education system. Um I do I I feel like whenever I hear about the banned books, people wanting to ban books, I'm like, "Wow, thank you for thinking books are that powerful." Like the idea that novels could be that still in this day and age where we're told that kids don't read as much and they're just (laughs) on the internet all day. Just the idea that novels and short stories could be so powerful that you have to ban them is, I feel like, accidentally a compliment.
1: I agree. It's amazing. (laughs) It also has that sort of, I was thinking about this also in the same it has that same sort of feeling of erasure of like physical space too, which yeah. I know both of our books talk about this idea that you can just, you can't really, I mean, you can build something over something. You can hide something away. Like you can take these books off shelves. You can build a building over what used to be, you know, an indigenous site. You can do these things, but it doesn't stop them from being there. Yeah. And it doesn't stop the power of their presence. And I think that's again why storytelling is so important because like we extract that kind of thing and you know, even with b- books being banned, like then we'll write about the books that are banned and right. we'll find another way to talk about the things that are in, the, you know, that th- that need to be talked about, but um but yeah, I think in general the idea of trying to erase something or pretend it doesn't exist or you know, quiet it or silence it. You know, it's it's just, it's such a, it's such an ineffective. And <laughs> yeah, it's really missing
0: the, Yeah. Point. and like, what are you trying to hide? I mean, I feel like it's like uh, perspectives of people from non-white backgrounds um, and like queer sex and sometimes just sex in general. Like, do you, do you think that you can <laughs> make these things go away? Good
1: luck. Right. Um,
0: right. Yeah. It, it makes me think of, I was talking uh, to a friend who's also a mom about, you know, f- what kids read and is it okay if our kids are reading stuff that we think is like kind of not totally age appropriate. And I was like, well, look, okay. When I was 13, 14, what was I reading? Flowers in the Attic. Did you read those books? They were like softcore porn for tweens <laughs> in the nineties. <90s. laughs> like, incest so, but the storytelling was like so interesting um, and so compelling and you know, everyone just wanted to keep reading them and pass them around. But I was talking to a friend who said her mother went through her copy of Flowers in the Attic and um, folded over some pages and said these pages are really inappropriate and I don't want you to read them but you can read the rest. And she was like, got it! And of course... (laughs) to the folded over pages
1: obviously
0: um because it's like hello have you ever met kids or teenagers
1: (laughs) you're just making them more interested i also think like of all of the different kinds of content that anyone is consuming right now, yeah. that what's the problem? Really? Books are definitely not the problem, and yeah. I think the stories—they're going to find that kind of content elsewhere. All yeah. they have to do is go on the internet for one second, and right. they'll find way worse that they're than they're finding in books. So it's such a yeah. It's just I think it's like a, just like a dog whistle for certain kinds of behavior, and it's you know yeah. all these things are motivated from the wrong, you know, the wrong places, the wrong intentions. But um but it's been a little terrifying. I remember when we first heard about some of the books being banned, I thought, okay, this will die down. Because I feel like this is again another one of those constant, you know, like every now and again this pops up and we're like, oh that's annoying and then it seems to calm down (laughs) again. This time it's you know it's finding a lot more root. And um I don't know. I don't know why uh again, there's some things where these some of these constants I'm like, this doesn't feel like it needs to continue to be a problem. Like this should be yeah. one of those things that did get sort of just like just <laughs> it doesn't continue to happen, but Right. Here it's we like are. okay,
0: don't be silly. Harry Potter isn't about the devil. Come on. But right. then also, you know, in a more meta way, it's just there's a real unpleasant vibe of fascism about just, you know, the act of banning books that I think more than, you know, I think obviously that's what disturbs us when we hear about it, more than the idea that a teenager couldn't find this book. I think they'll find the books they want to find. Um, but yeah, it's just the, it's the fascism for me. That's yeah, a, also <laughs> a little problematic.
1: The fascism is always pretty terrifying. So I have a question for you because I do really yes. have a lot of time left. So What are you, I hate when people ask me this question, but I am (laughs) like rude, but I'm just really curious. Like, what are you reading right now that you love?
0: What am I reading? Oh, that's such a good question. I just, I've actually weirdly been reading a lot of craft books um, about writing, which I don't usually do, but I've been teaching a lot of um, memoir and personal essay writing, and I write personal essay but it's not... I feel like I don't... My background is not as extensive in it as in fiction. So I feel like I've been reading a lot of craft books to think about sort of more clear ways to talk to my students. Um, and I just finished Body Work by Melissa Phoebos, which oh, is yeah. incredible um, about writing memoir and personal essay. She's just an amazing writer. Um, and then I also just... Uh, started reading the chronology of water by Lydia Yuknovich, which everyone else read like a thousand years ago. But it's a memoir, um, sort of about her path from being a, a really highly ranked swimmer. She was like going to try out for the Olympics, I think, as a swimmer, and um, and then sort of used it as a way to escape her um, troubled and traumatic home. Family of origin, and um, yeah, there's a lot about like bodies and sensuality and water and sex—all good topics. That sounds um,
1: amazing. That's such a good title too. I know, isn't it good? Oh my gosh, I and love it.
0: On that theme, also, I just finished the anthology Wanting. Have you heard about this anthology? No, I haven't. Uh, one of the editors is Kelly Mcmasters, and the other one is Margot Khan, um, and. Uh, they just—it just was released, and it's this incredible group of women writers writing about desire. That's really good.
1: That I forget
0: good. The, how fun anthologies are to read until I read one, and then I'm I like, know
1: I kind of do oh, too. I'm and then when I do, I do, the same. I know. It's such um, a great—it's such a great concept, the anthology. I know.
0: They did a really good job too. What about you? What are you reading?
1: I am reading Rebecca Mackay's new book. I love her oh, writing love her. and. Um it is so good. It is it's one of those books that like like I was up so late last night reading because I could not put it down. I'm like, "Rebecca McKay. I can't. How I have dare to." Put you? It down. <laughs> um it is so she is such a phenomenal writer. And I learned something interesting about her at AWP last week was that she does not have an MFA. Mm. I don't have an MFA, and I've always felt a little bit of imposter syndrome because of it. Mm. And uh, and then I thought, oh my God, this is amazing. Yeah, <laughs> yes,
0: to cry doesn't mean MFA. You don't either. <laughs>
1: um, but yeah, it's, I mean, I don't really need to recommend it. It's on like the national bestseller list right now. So everybody is reading it, but, <laughs> um, but it is so good. And she is such a master at bringing in all these different elements and like tying them in a way that I don't even know how her brain can do it. You know, I'm reading this just imagining her somewhere, this outline she must have of keeping (laughs) all these threads together because it's brilliant. And I just, you know, it's been, it's interesting because this is the second time where I've read, I read Great Believers when I was, um, working on Tell Me One Thing and yeah, and I, it was kind of amazing because she has this free way of writing that I had realized, made me realize as a writer that I was... Being, I was a little restricted in the way I was thinking about voice in my book, or just like mm. restricting my own voice in the book. So, um, I remember on a revision, just being like, you know, like manifest Rebecca Mackay and get that's her confidence so and just write. And I think that um, that's one of many ways that I think I learned from other writers. You know, there's yeah. only that's that's been my education is just seeing how people do things and thinking about the confidence that they have in doing things and the freedom that they're feeling when they're doing that and trying to do that. So now I'm reading this one as I'm working on revisions of my next book and it's I had a moment where I was like, I have to remember to get back into that like, you know that space of confidence and yeah. writing. So so this book is not only, you know incredible just for the sake of the way that it's written, but also helping me from a craft perspective, which I love mm-hmm. about good books like that.
0: I know. I mean, I do think that really is the secret of learning how to write, you know? I mean, I do have an MFA, and I don't know. I loved getting my MFA. It was really fun. It was like writer summer camp for three years, and I met great people. I don't know if I learned anything that I couldn't have learned just from reading a lot. It was fun. I loved it. But, um, but really, I mean, that's what I tell my students, you know, is like really really, I know this is a boring answer to how do I really learn how to write something, but it's really so much reading. And you do learn so much from reading and from, like I I tell writers I work with to if they're stuck on a structure issue, to take a book or a story that they really love and to outline it as if it's theirs um, and just look at, it's like you can pick it apart and look at how it's made and then sort of see think about that structure for your own writing. But of course, like as an experienced novelist, you know, I'm sure Rebecca Mackay's first draft was not as like, flawless <laughs> and, and everything just seemed to fit together. I'm sure it wasn't like an effortless process. Um, it's like the most effortless, right? thing to read always was so painstaking to put together. I know. Um, I know. But hopefully but we hide the scenes, you know.
1: Yeah, exactly. Hopefully by the time it comes out no one can see that. But absolutely Yeah,
0: hopefully. Then <laughs> <laughs> you're like,
1: yeah, it just kinda of pour it out. I don't know. I know. It was just perfect from page one. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's been so great talking to you. I'm so glad we were able to do this. And I know, me too. We're right. We really should just do this like weekly. I know. We us just keep finding Jesus to us. Yes. <laughs> What's that? We'll just, yeah, we'll just like record something and put it out there and see what happens. <laughs> but
0: can carry show. Um, I'm so excited for your next book.
1: Thank you. I'm excited for I your next watched. book too. Thanks.
0: Thanks. Uh, yeah. It's such a strange process, you know?
1: <laughs> I know. I know. And a long one, but we're getting yeah. there. We're getting there.
0: In each book I think, oh, this'll be easier now. But it but it isn't. But that's okay.
1: Yeah. That's part of the that's one of the constants also, the constant struggle of creativity. (laughs) So wise. (laughs) That wraps it all back up. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, I hope I get to see you in real life again very soon. Yeah, let's do it. Perfect. Thanks, Carrie. Thank you, Amy.
0: Thank you for listening. Please visit alwaysauthors.com to learn about our other episodes. Always Authors is an exclusive production of Atomic Focus Entertainment.